Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. There's nothing that makes a Greenland whale Feel half so high and mighty Sitting on a mantelpiece in Auntie Mabel's nighty And that may not be scientifically factual, that nothing makes a Greenland whale feel as mighty as sitting. I, I just don't even think, you know, that that's been studied, whether they would wear somebody's aunt's nighty. Uh, but that's Natalie Merchant, and she isn't 100% scientific. We are going to talk about Greenland today. There's no avoiding Greenland today. But the main thing I want to tell you is today is a show without guests. Uh, the only guests are going to be you. You're going to call up and... You will have the exciting experience of helping to inaugurate our brand new call-in line. And it's like Chuck Yeager. I want you to take this baby up and test it. See if you can break it. See if you can push it. Uh, if, see if you can push the envelope, uh, as they say in test pilotry. So our, our, now I have to tell you what it is, right? That would be helpful. Uh, I'll say it many times today because you, all you know is the old one. What have you known your whole lives here? You've known the old one. Well, the new one is 888 888- 720 WNPR. If you dislike dialing letters with your phone, and I, who can blame you? It's 888 720 9677. I'm going to do both of those again just so you'll have a chance. Jot them down, whatever. Because, uh, yes, I mean, this is a very risky thing I'm doing. I'm doing a show with no guests, a show that is therefore entirely dependent on phone calls on a day when the audience is being introduced to a call-in number that it doesn't know. All right. this I, I, Talk about test pilot. Talk about Chuck Yeager. I'm Chuck Yeager. All right. <laughs> the number is 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. So pick your poison. It's actually the same number either way. In fact, as many of you, some of you, one of you may have noticed when you go to other countries, like, for example, in the Europe's, um, in the Europe's, when you go to your when you go to what the British call a cash point, which is something that what we call an ATM, when you go to a, a, an ATM in Europe, it is often the case that there is an alphanumeric keypad. There, there is only the numerical keypad. So if you're, you know, <laughs> if you're if you're pin was actually not a pin but a piw um the uh let's say it's the name of a dog or something right so let's say your name your pin which wasn't really a pin it was piw was bowser well <laughs> you're just looking at a bunch of numbers trying to figure out how in the world you're going to reconstruct 
Bowser from this numerical pad. So if you think you're confused right now, um, you probably are. Um, all right, so we're going to test out our new call-in line. People are already testing out the new call-in line. I haven't even thrown out a topic other than a vague allusion to Greenland. And I will be happy to discuss Greenland either now or later. But theoretically, so I used to do this show for 16 years on WTIC where there really weren't any rules about what people would call up about. And they would often call up about Subjects which I frankly was not prepared to undertake with them, but they would call anyway. Um, and so I think that can be kind of the rule today. I've got a bunch of topics here that I will be bringing up. But uh, actually, I think what we should do is just uh, – so I guess where we live is already used this brand new phone number. But I never have. So we have <laughs> – <laughs> oh, oh! I really okay. That's good. We can do that. Uh, Tim is going to be the first person. He is going to be the historic first person to use the brand new call-in number on the Colin McEnroe show. So that's probably the second paragraph of your obit. There's probably something you're much more famous for than that, but it should be in there somewhere. Tim, Tim, driving to Danbury. You're on the air. What's on your mind, if anything? Hey, how you doing? I'm I'm all right. Thank you very much for asking. Hey, how about those Yankees? <laughs> Are you going to hang up and t- take your call, take your answer off the air? <laughs> yeah. All right. So that that really wasn't a good historic first call. All right. That wasn't. I yeah, my answer, by the way, is that the Yankees have to stop specifically one of the Yankees. This is a delicate subject because I'm a Red Sox fan, and in fact, Jonathan McPants, who's the producer of this episode today, is a big Yankees fan, but. It's clear to me that the Yankees, and specifically one of the Yankees, has to stop banging on the roof of the dugout because it's now become the case. So Brett Gardner is the person who bang, he takes his bat, apparently, and he pounds when he's unhappy on the roof of the dugout. And the umpires have now taken this as a criticism of them. And so they have taken to throwing him out of games when he does that. And he has to stop doing that. All right. I mean, the Yankees are having a wonderful season. And, you know, they're probably going to play in the World Series. Um, but uh, you don't want to be known for like – it's just weird the way he does that too. So I didn't want you to think I had no answer to the question, how about them Yankees? Uh, all right. <laughs> I haven't even put out a topic yet and people are calling in. All right. Uh, I'm not going to know the answer to this question, but um, but I should take it anyway, right, just to prove that I'm not afraid. Here's David calling from Quaker Hill. Where is Quaker Hill? It's in Waterford. Oh, okay. It's uh, it's a village. It's a village. Yes, perhaps a hamlet. Uh, well, I think we call it a village. All right. I didn't want to make it a hamlet if it was only a village, or maybe a village is bigger than a hamlet. Anyway, that's not your question. What's your question? Yeah, um, you know, Mexico is a wonderful country. Yeah. But there's a, there's a lot of poverty there. Yes. And I w- I was wondering, can we send um, you know foreign aid to Mexico to you know to actually prep up that that economy instead of doing all this warfare going on in the Middle East? Well, first of all, <laughs> um, first of all, there's so many different layers to that, but there's some things that I want I, I would like to talk about. I think it was Elizabeth Warren at one of the debates. There was a moment at one of the debates, and a person, given the fact that there's 23 or 4 candidates, can be forgiven for not remembering who said what. But I think it was Elizabeth Warren who said that in terms of what her immigration policy would be, it would include meetings. She didn't mention Mexico, Mexico so much as she mentioned the triangle countries, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, that she would want 
inclined to sit down uh, with, at minimum, you know, members of her own cabinet and leaders of those countries and try to figure out what's so what's wrong in those countries. That's pro- well, we know what's wrong, but what's propelling people out of the country and how the U.S. can participate uh, in in remedying some of the problems that make people so eager to leave those three countries and indeed, David of Quaker Hill, pass through Mexico. So I like the way your mind is working right now, which is rather than making Fortress America, why don't we figure out why it is that people are so eager to get out of where they are and see whether we can do something in the area uh, of foreign aid or or it may require more than mere foreign aid. There's actually a pretty good editorial, I think, today in The New York Times talking about the fact that increasingly where we build up our defense budget, to your point, uh, every year. Uh, the, right now, the Republicans and the Democrats are working on a compromise on how big an in- increase uh, to have. But we are actually cutting back on some of the stuff that you're talking about. And so if it's always that dichotomy between guns and butter, we are increasingly more in love with guns and less in love with butter. And and I, I'm sort of with you if you're suggesting maybe butter would be worth thinking about. Yes, yes. I, I like the idea of doing good as opposed to creating more war. Right. I mean, and I do think that at this point, it's increasingly the case that people see the wars that we've been in, the post 9-11 wars that we've been in, as basically failures, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, or Libya. You know, these are not successful military operations. We're, we're maintaining by far, by an order of magnitude, the world's largest defense budget. And to do what? You know, and to do what with it? So, yeah, I'm with you, David. Excellent call. We're going to just sort of erase Tim from the record books. That'll be This will be the first call, what you just did right now, using the 888-720-WNPR number. Once again, 888-720-9677. Before I take the next call, and there are <laughs> – I love this. I wanted to mention there until last December in Dallas – on KERA, there was this great show. I always feel like we don't use enough different ideas on public radio. So I was in Texas last May, May of, of 2018, to give a speech uh, at Wichita Falls, Texas. Is that a place? I think that's where I was. But anyway, wherever I was, I could hear the Dallas station. And they had a show that came on, I think, in the late morning called Anything You Ever Wanted to Know. And what it was was people could call in about anything and, and just ask a question. And they had a host. I think his name was Jeff Whittington. And and they could call in and ask Jeff a question. And he wouldn't know the answer, but he would let them say the question. And then somebody else would call up with the answer. And and people often had very practical things, you know, where can I get this kind of shiffer robe or something? But, I mean, sometimes they had philosophical questions. Sometimes they had questions that, like, one person wanted to know, when they do butter sculptures, like at the Texas State Fair or other places like that, what do they do with the butter afterwards? Um, there was also a, a big uh, debate, not so much a debate, there was people calling in to deplore the fact that instead of saying, you're welcome, people now say, no problem, um, which these people down in Texas thought was sort of vaguely discourteous since it, it implied that it could have been a problem, whatever you were being thanked for doing. You could have chosen to perceive that as a problem, but you didn't, so you said no problem. So, you know, it was. It was a really interesting use of a big radio station with a big signal and phone lines. You know, they didn't have guests. They, I mean, the, the people 
the people crowdsourced all these problems. The, the show was on the air for 12 years, and they canceled it, I don't know why, in late December of last year. So uh, it's just an example of what you can do with, I say, as I say, a radio station and a phone line. Okay, so um, here we go with uh, Tom in Madison. Oh, and then Gene, you're going to be next because uh, we're trying to uh, keep some kind of balance between men and women here. So, Tom, you're up. Oh, what's on your mind? Hey, Colin, big fan. Uh, I wanted to find out how exactly a country goes about buying another country. <laughs> Who gets the money? Does it get spread out among the citizens? Or do you have to buy it from the landowners? Yeah, so you do think people like, have to vote? Yeah, so you think like everybody in Denmark would get a Greenland bonus at the end of the year. There's your share. Of what we got for Greenland. Well, yes. I mean, I'm not sure how serious a question that is, uh, but then I'm not how sure how serious a proposal the Greenland proposal is. I mean, there's always this question that we have. You know, is he gaslighting us? Is he serious? Is he actually seriously thinking about buying Greenland? I have a lot to say about buying Greenland, but I think the answer to that question is that there is no answer to that question because there really is no modern precedent for doing this. <laughs> and and it's not for sale. And if it were for sale, it's not clear that you could buy it from Denmark. Greenland is a semi-autonomous island, um, world's largest island, of course. But uh, it's a semi-autonomous island. It's not even clear to me that Denmark has the authority to sell Greenland as a possession. Um, but since it's not going to happen, and it was a ridiculous suggestion to begin with, um, all right. Here's Jane. She's going to follow up on, I think, uh, the David point about uh, Mexico and the triangle. Hi, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Jane. Hey, how's it going? It's, it's James, actually. Okay, sorry. Well, I was all excited because you were Jane. Could you pitch your voice a little higher? Would that be too much to ask? Maybe not. Go ahead. I, I, I'll try. Okay. Um, no, I'm just concerned about the... Uh, inclination in Americans to become interventionists. So we've caused all these problems in Central America, and we're not really going to take responsibility. We just want to throw money at the problem rather than, like, give the people reparations in some sense for all the assassinations and CIA programs we've put out down there. Right. Well, so, yes, I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with the same narratives that you are, that many, a lot of the destabilization of law and order in these countries has to do with our reckless intervention in the past. The, the question that I have is, what's the right remedy now? For example, I mean, if you have countries where there's just a tremendous amount of highly militarized gang violence and a general quality of lawlessness, so you have these people fleeing up through Mexico because the women uh, have been threatened with gang rape, you know, or the men have been, their lives have been threatened, the children have been threatened. You know, what do we do? Because if we go down there and intervene in any kind of paramilitary way, I mean, now there really are bad guys who are out of control there. That's why people are trying to get out of these countries, because they fear for their lives. But in general, we wouldn't want to repeat the mistakes of the past by going in there and somehow or other trying to beef up the police presence there, I, you know, it's, it's sort of weird when you ha when you have that level of violence in a country and we want to help out with it. The question becomes, how do we help out with it? Well, I think the first thing we can do is accept anybody who wants to seek asylum here and actually treat it as a real problem. 
Right. Well, that would be nice, but that appears not to be happening. But yes, that would be that would be a start. But I mean, really, like I, I really do. I did respect Elizabeth Warren, if that's who it was, for saying, look, we've got to have some conversations with these countries. How can we work together instead of you being violent and dysfunctional, people fleeing from your country? They hit our borders. We feel like we've exceeded our quota. We're not taking more refugees. Um, you know, how do we stop that cycle? And I mean, it's sort of not a proposal we're going to hear out of the present administration. And I'm not sure that the answer is going to be particular. In fact, I know that the answer won't be easy. These these are not problems that you can wave a, a wand at or a wad of money at and solve. All right. Here's Anna. Anna's on the road. Hi, Anna. Hi. Hi. So well, what's your comment or question? My question is, what are adults doing about climate change? Not enough. Um, and I don't blame you for being worried. Well, let me ask you, uh, uh, since you're, you're going to be one of the people who inherits this environment that we've messed up so badly, what's your biggest worry? What do you worry about? My biggest worry is that my future. Right. You want to have a, a world that you can live in where there aren't food shortages, water shortages, uh, uh, massive refugee problems as people flee, not just from violence, but because the, the place that they lived is no longer inhabitable. That's the kind of thing you're worried about? Yeah. Not to make you any more worried here on this Monday than you already were. So, yeah, I, I don't think that we are doing anywhere near enough. I think that's clear. I mean, right now, of course, here in the United States, we have an administration that does not really acknowledge the reality of climate change, much less set its shoulder to the wheel and do something about it. In fact, we have an administration that is doing things that will exacerbate climate change. But it's, you know, once we get serious about it, which I assume we eventually will, it's going to be complex too. For example, Anna, you may have been hearing people talk about the fact that here in Connecticut, they've started in uh, retail establishments to charge money for plastic bags as a way to try to incentivize people uh, not to use plastic bags. What do you think about that? I think that's good. I I do too. Um, On the other hand, it's, you know, like so many of these things, it's complicated. So oddly enough, for a single-use bag, the the lowest carbon footprint of anything that you can use is one of those stupid plastic bags. So if you're worried about carbon, you don't want people to switch to paper because paper has a much a paper bag has a much larger carbon footprint and produces more waste than a plastic bag. On the other hand, plastic bags are petroleum products and they don't biodegrade, so they wind up in the oceans and they choke dugongs or whatever those sea mammals are. I mean, they, they're you know the they're, we're going to have more fish. Uh, more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050, according to one estimate. So plastic's not good. Paper's not good. And uh, somehow or other, we have to get people to change their habits, right, and bring their own bags? Yeah. So are you bugging your parents to do that? They already do it. Oh, uh, you got good parents. They listen to public radio. How could they not be good people? Anna, thanks so much for calling. I don't think I was, I was no help, was I? No, you were. Oh, it's okay. You can say I was no help. Uh, well, listen, somehow or other, 
I'm hopeful that the human race comes to its senses very soon and really begins to do something about this because it's not fair to you. It's not fair to people your age that we're not taking this seriously. There's a lot of us who are going to be gone from this earth when the the worst consequences get uh, handed down and and people Anna's age shouldn't be stuck with the bill, stuck with the tab. All right. So this is fun. And we have Jason, Lori, uh, I'll, I'll take one more call, and then we'll go to a break. Uh, and we're going to take Lori from Ledyard, because I like the alliteration. Hi, Lori. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for t- taking my, ca- my call. Um, my question or comment has to do with uh, the word racist. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we should do away with that word because it's so inflammatory. And since you, as a person who lives, you know, his life through words. I'm curious what you would um, say about that. I I agree that the word isn't what it used to be. Although I, I think it's, I would say that it's in some ways, this is a complicated thing, but it's in some ways less inflammatory because it's increasingly emptied out of meaning, right? I mean, if everybody's calling everybody else racist all the time, after a while, the word, it, it suffers kind of an, an inflationary effect where there's too much of it and it doesn't carry as much value. I think also, I mean, you know, it's been a remarkable thing to, to see major organs of the press uh, refer to the president as having racist views, to see a recent poll where 51 percent of Americans think the president of the United States has racist views, racist sentiments. I mean, that's that's shocking to me. I mean, you know, I don't think Dick Nixon was the greatest guy in the world, but I don't think you'd ever see a poll like that. So in, in a way, the more that it floats around and becomes acceptable, you know, the more that I worry that it doesn't have the value that it used to have. But then what would we replace it with, Lori? Oh, that's such a good question. I would think that, again, just as you said, because it's become like an umbrella term, I sort of, um, I equate it with like the word love, you know, and how that's kind of an umbrella term. But like the Greeks have a bunch of different words for love, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on the situation. Well, with racist, like, you know, if you could if you could divide up the situations in which the offensive um, action has happened, you know, like, I don't know, equating, uh, I don't know, a particular race with a certain characteristic. Right. So we could call that, we could call that stereotyping. Right. You know? Well, we do have a few. Uh, Greek-like sort of what differentiations that we're making. For example, we do have the term white supremacy, which you know people have been attempting to define recently, and the standard definition of it now seems to be the assumption that there's something better that white people actually have qualities that make them superior to other races. That that seems to be the accepted, at least within the world of opinion writing and journalism, uh, definition of white supremacy. So you could sort of start there. But racism racism doesn't have any real specific meaning, right? You're a racist if something. So so I would agree. You know, we could do a better job of uh, defining our terms before we sling them around. Um, On the other hand, you got to have (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, we have a lot of racism out there, and you got to have some way to talk about it. So I'm not willing, quite willing to give up the word racist until we have a good set of replacements. Let's take a little break. Once again, the exciting new uh, call-in number is 888-720-WNPR. So you can say you're the first call-in Colin McEnroe show where they use the new number. That. I don't know how that doesn't get everybody excited, but 888-720-9677. At some point, I do have to talk about Greenland, but but we can wait. Play a Greenland song. All right, we're back. We're using the exciting new call-in number, but I've got so many people on hold right now, I may not give it out just now. Uh, I want to get to Dalal before uh, Dalal gets out of range because Dalal, I believe, is driving to Cape Cod. So what's on your mind? You're on the air. Hi, good afternoon, Colin. Thanks for letting us do this. I'm really excited to be a part of this. Okay. So basically, I am a gastroenterologist in training, and my final year, I wanted to give you two options. Either we can talk about the importance of getting your colonoscopy on time when you turn 50, or we can talk about uh, Kashmir, which is a hot issue. Maybe you've heard of it as well. Yes. Uh, Kashmir turbulence in India and Pakistan. So we can talk about either of those. I'll let uh, let you decide. I can talk more knowledgeably about the first one than about the second one, although I'm aware uh, in a very crude manner about the situation in Kashmir. Let me just say this. Uh, I've had now two colonoscopies. Um, Actually, I now get a colonoscopy and an endoscopy at the same time. I insist that they rinse the thing off in between the two uh, procedures. But uh, other than that, I think it's been a really good idea. I mean, it, it is essential. It's something nobody... I mean, whenever you describe it to somebody, Dalal, they don't want to do it, right? Because um, it just doesn't sound like it. But it's nowhere near as bad as people make it out to be. And then it's all over and you're, you know, you've done it, right? Absolutely. I, I've done hundreds of those. And honestly, the biggest reluctance to patients have is just that taboo associated with, you know, uh, something going uh, up the rectum. Which uh, I just wanted to say, first off, you're completely asleep. Now, most of the places do it while you're completely asleep, so you don't even feel anything. Um, so, you know, you and you wake up, most people say they had the best uh, sleep of their life, and uh, you've uh, we've potentially, you know, uh, screened you for cancer. That's the whole idea, and we're, we're saving a lot of lives that way. So, as just, you know, it's a super important thing. If every time, every person who's turning 50, or even your mid forty five. Some people you can start screening at in the forties as well. So, right. Um, I, yeah. I I think another important thing, Dalal, is. People need to find a gastroenterologist that they can talk to, you know, because medicine is increasingly corporatized these days. Uh, for a long time, my gastroenterologist who recently retired, he was like a guy I could really, really talk to. And he made a point of talking to everybody. I, one thing that I noticed the last time I got a, a, a colonoscopy and endoscopy is like some other person from within the practice, not a doctor. I don't know whether it was a nurse or a tech person or something. Somebody called me up and read me the results and stuff. And I thought, uh, you know, I just had a colonoscopy and an endoscopy. I want to talk to my gastroenterologist. I mean, it's so important that we communicate. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't hear what you're saying, but that's what we do pretty much every day. Uh, most of the people either have completely uh, normal colonoscopies or they have uh, polyps taken out, which are uh, benign polyps. 
if he was uh, if he ended up calling every person with that that would take a huge amount of time unfortunately i do realize the personal connection that patients want to develop with the doctors and so do we as well but honestly with the nature of how you know medicine is nowadays it's it's very very hard to do that now if there is something serious like uh, unfortunately if it's you know like something that's developing into a cancer or anything serious uh we definitely call the patients if you know we never let that uh, like our uh, mid level providers take care of that we try call patients and you know talk to them for as long as it uh, needs to be Right. Well, you sound like I think I'm, you're going to be my gastroenterologist. When you get back from Cape Cod, I'm going to call you up. You're going to be my new gastroenterologist. I would love that. All right. All right. Thank bye. You. But if you're going to stick a probe there, you should minimum send flowers. If you're not going to call, you know, at least, you know, like a note, text me the next day. <laughs> it's not too much to ask. Um, I have, I, 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 to tell you the truth, I will tell you this. I, the last time I had a colonoscopy, I, there were precancerous something or others. I forget what they were. And the person who called me up didn't explain that to me. My own um, primary care physician, because all the results now just circulate electronically, he picked that up. He said, did they tell you this? Um, and, I mean, it, it was it was something that, I, you know, it actually shortened the window. Like, instead of 10 years, now I'm at five years, stuff like that. So, I don't know. I think that I actually think the doctor should call you uh, if there's anything. All right. Uh, here's the most difficult call of the day, probably from Kellyanne in Cheshire. Hi, Kellyanne. You're on the air. Hi. How you doing? Okay. Good. I'm calling because I wanted to know a little bit something I think you have some personal knowledge with. I read an article recently that there's a little bit of a shakeup going on over at WMPR staffing that maybe some offers were put out to some of the senior members to kind of, you know, take their packages and head out and maybe bring in some new talent. Can you can you shed some light on that? Yeah, I can shed a little bit of light on it. Hopefully I can do it in a way that doesn't get me fired. Um, all right, so if you read that article, I assume it's the article that I'm quoted in, which was actually a radio uh, piece that I was quoted in. And, you know, I mean, I, as I made it clear that I wasn't a big fan of the way that this was announced. It was sort of announced in a way that they, they really didn't make it clear what they were trying to do, and it really was a little bit of a shock to the system around here, and I, I wound up talking to a lot of the people. So, and just to flesh out what Kellyanne is saying, so this was a buyout offer that was directed at people with 20 years of service or more here, although it's not clear that they would have to accept anybody or everybody's buyout. In other words, if you were to elect it. It used to be, I, I took a buyout from the current in 1994. I had 19 years of service at that time, and they couldn't stop you. If you were eligible to take that buyout, There's they couldn't even talk to you about it. I guess the laws or the rules have changed. I mean, I don't think... I don't know. There's, I, it's hard to know what I can say and what I can't say. What, what I will say about this is there are some ways in which that maybe wasn't handled all that great. And it, it, whenever that happens, it touches off a little bit of fear. And, and, and people are, start worrying, well, do they have a target? If they don't hit that target, are they going to lay people off? You know, What's going to happen? Uh, it, that doesn't appear to be the case. I've now talked to uh, a lot of the people. in. Uh, there's a whole new management team here. We had the same CEO for 35 years. Now we have new people running this company. And they're going to run it differently. That happens anywhere where there's a big leadership change. One thing that I will say that I, I think should give people heart um, is that what the what the new management team inherited journalistically was a system that is a shaky system, which is to say that 
uh, most of the reporters, I, I don't know what percentage, a high percentage of the reporters in our newsroom are here grant funded from the outside. And when that grant money runs out, there's no way to sustain their work. Um, and that's a system that was set up by the old management. And it's it's we just had somebody leave because his grant was over and this just wasn't. And so the new management here is saying that they are very committed to the idea of actually having a budget for journalism, actually having a plan to pay for reporters to work here. Um, and if they're if they can bring that about, if they are totally committed to it and they can bring that about, it'll actually improve part of what we do here. Um, uh, you know, this is going to be probably a, a pretty interesting transition year and there'll be days maybe when people are uh, more unhappy than they're happy both here in this building and in the listenership but you know I don't know what it's going to be like at the end of a year but I do believe that they're right about this thing anyway that we we got into a bad habit you couldn't come in here unless there was outside money to pay for you and that's not the way you run a journalism operation you actually have to have the money to fund it yourself Otherwise, people, you know, they stay here three, five years, whatever the grant is, and then they're gone. Yeah, well, I'm glad you explained that because you kind of put a little confidence back in the system. I was worried, you know, it's 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 a really great, you know, program, and you you got both the like young people like Frankie, and then you got senior people like Diane Orson running the news. So I love the mix up. I I hope that you can retain, you know, the identity of WNPR. But I do like to hear that there's going to be some stability for funding because that's that's crazy important. So thank you so much for taking my call. All right. I can't promise you that everything's going to be roses because uh, it's not. You know, we're, we're going to have some growing pains and some change of leadership pains, and that just goes with having new people come in. And, and But I'm hoping anyway, I'm hoping that a year from now we can point to a lot of changes that have been made that will be made for, for good reasons too. All right. So um, I don't think I said anything that would get me fired. <laughs> Um, and I, I hope I'm not painting. Well, anyway, that's fine. That'll that'll do it. Eight 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 eight. The new phone number. See, this is part of the whole new thing. We got a new phone number. Eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. Eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. And uh, let's take at least one more phone call before we go to a break. Here, I haven't had try- time to evaluate it. Um, well, let's see. Do, 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 do. Okay. Oh, uh, this is political bias from me. Good. Uh, here's Stephen Meriden. Hi, Steve. Hi. How are you, Colin? I'm good. We're all over the map on this show. Yeah. But it's a great show, and uh, I used to listen to you on TIC and stuff. But I, you know, you were just talking about the uh, new journalism that you have mm-hmm. possibly coming up. Um, does your staff think that uh, there is a uh, a hidden resistance to Donald Trump and um, your bias. I mean, you never have uh, Republican people on your show on Wednesdays. And I know that's not your show per se, but you never have uh, uh, the other side of the uh, the argument. You set the, the agenda today with climate change. Uh, uh, well, Anna set up that one. Stuff. <laughs> you, you said, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, whatever. All the... The 20 people that called before me, you never um, uh, talked about. I it was a good interview that you did with Milo, and mm-hmm. stuff, but that was you know controversial. Yep. But it, you know that was one ninety nine percent of the time 
you're all biased for that. And I don't think that's right for public radio. All right, so let me talk a little bit about that. First of all, um, we also interviewed Jordan Peterson. I hope we get points for that, too. But anyway, um, as far as, the, okay, for, far as the wheelhouse goes on Wednesday, one of the problems that we have, we do have any conservative journalists we can get our hands on, uh, and we even kind of bend our own, we've bent our own rules in the past. The basic rule for the wheelhouse is we want to have working reporters or people from academia. Uh, you know, we don't want to have people who are political operatives, people who might have clients, anything like that. To get conservatives well, what on. What about you? What about me? Yeah. What about me? You're a political activist. I'm a, I'm a political activist? How am yeah. I a political activist? Oh, I read your stuff on Facebook. You resist Trump. Oh, cool. well, that's that's an opinion. I'm an opinion journalist. Okay, well, that's what I'm talking about. No, no, Steve, you're not listening you're, right you're now. You're not professional. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm an opinion journalist. I'm a columnist. I get paid to have right, opinions. So I have an opinion. Right. I'll be on your show. Right. Okay? Well, you are on my show right now, Steve. In fact, I took you ahead of other callers because I saw that you wanted to talk about the issue of bias. But you have to listen for a second. I'm going to pop you on hold just so I can explain something. So one of the things that we do on the wheelhouse is we really work hard to try to get conservative viewpoints on. So, yeah, you'll hear Kevin Rennie when we can get him. You'll hear Jonathan Wharton, who's actually... Although he's a guy from academia, he's also, I think, the Republican chair town chairman of New Haven or something. We wouldn't ordinarily do that, but it's so hard to to find conservative voices here in Connecticut. And then when you find Connecticut uh, conservative voices, Steve, finding conservatives in Connecticut who are Trump supporters is damn near impossible. I mean, it's really hard to do. I mean, outside of you know, Joe Visconti, who we're not going to put on the wheelhouse, um, you know, it's hard to find people who will support Trump's policies right now. And yeah, I absolutely, you know, I came over here from a job at WTIC where I was absolutely paid to have opinions and encouraged to have opinions. And so after 16 years of listening to me and, I don't know, 40-something years of reading my columns, yeah, everybody knows what my political leanings are. I don't make any any secret of them. And it's not considered unprofessional to be an opinion journalist. I mean, it's as old as the tradition of journalism is itself that there are people writing who have opinions. There are other people who are reporters who are really encouraged not to show your their opinions. I'm not one of those. Um, but that doesn't make me unprofessional. I mean, uh, that's absurd. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I'm going to put you, take you off hold now <laughs> and let you respond. But I don't know if that answers any of your questions. But we really do okay, want to have. Can I say something? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you took down Governor Rowland. I didn't take <laughs> <laughs> you're giving you me way. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. You're we're giving me way too much credit. I think the Justice Department took you him went down. after <laughs> him on purpose. Yeah. For for fixing a, a woodshed. Oh, oh no no no! You're not going to get away with that. No, Steve. Yes, yes. That's what you did. No Big deal. No, you're not going to. On a woodshed. No, no. You had no. some state workers. Don't you think other people did that? Okay, Steve. I'm going to put you on hold again because you're an interrupter. This is the big lie about John Rowland. I can't believe, I guess if we're doing open phones, you never know what we're going to talk about. So, uh, Steve, one of the things that I keep ready and on file, and I'd be happy to send it to you, is the stipulation that John Rowland signed at the time of sentencing. And at that time, he stipulated to being part of a criminal conspiracy to illegally award contracts for major state projects. So this included in uh, a garage uh, up at uh, Bradley Airport and it included a juvenile 
prison. The juvenile prison, which was once again awarded as the result of the con- the building contract was re- rewarded to people who were giving Roland stuff, stuff for his personal use, services, goods, stuff like that. It was so poorly built that Jody Rell, when she took over, she tried to close it. She said it was essentially unusable. They, they wound up not closing it. And one of the things that I always tell conservatives is dirty government costs a lot of money because things don't get built right and contracts don't get awarded to honest contractors. And Steve, that would be one of the great sorrows of the rolling years, which was if you were not taking care of this guy, you didn't operate on a legal playing field. An honest businessman, an honest construction contractor wasn't operating on the same playing field as a Roland crony who was taking care of Roland. And I don't understand how conservatives can sit there and say Roland did nothing. The press hunted him down the judicial department. All he did was take a woodshed and he had state workers work on it. None of that's true anyway. It wasn't state workers who were working on it. It was employees of contractors who were getting business from the state. And they were, as I say, gaining an unfair advantage over honest business people, Steve. So I don't know how an honorable person can sit here and and defend something like that. But I do hear that all the time. All right. Thank you. It's a good show. I'm glad we had this conversation. Me too. I'm glad you got that off your chest and I got it off my chest. All right. Now we have to take a break. We're not going to talk about John Rowland in 2004 anymore. It's 15 years later. There's other things to worry about, including Greenland. Oh, in 1844, on March the 18th day, we hoisted our colors to the top of the mast, and for Greenland for a way, brave boys, and for Greenland. I have no interest in buying Greenland from Denmark, but I would be up for trading all the Kardashians for Kierkegaard. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Susan Beisowitz. We'll be back tomorrow with a fond recollection of the VHS era. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, Let me just quickly tell you about uh, some stuff that's coming up this week. So I believe on Wednesday we have an interview that I've already completed with George Takei, uh, the man who played Sulu on Star Trek, but has been done so many other things as well. This is not an, an interview about Star Trek. It's really about his time in an American internment prison for Japanese-Americans during World War II. Uh, and um, he's, it's, I, I think you'll find it moving at times. He himself is still in quite a bit of psychic pain, particularly about the way his parents were treated. Uh, on Thursday, we are working up a uh, sports sing show, and we're going to talk about the sports things, like, for example, the baseballs, uh, perhaps the footballs, uh, things like that. But in an interesting way, if you're not a big sports fan, I mean, it's not we're gonna not gonna be sitting around doing like hot takes on the Knicks point guard situation or something like that. Because first of all, I wouldn't know how to do that. But second of all, because we're, we'll do this public radio style, you know, we'll do it Bill Littlefield. Is that his name? Bill Littlefield style. Is that who did? Is that who does only a game? Yeah, I think so. Um, so. Uh, yeah, we're not going to do How About Them Yankees. So, um, And then Friday, we're going to do The Nose, as usual. I have already seen uh, the movie Blinded by the Light, which we are going to talk about. It's about uh, a Pakistani uh, family in, living outside of London uh, in the 19, uh, circa 1987, I think, uh, and about a high school uh, boy from that family f- 
just going nuts for Bruce Springsteen and having it hit. So it's at the height of the Thatcher era. It's when the National Front is marching around, uh, protesting uh, immigration and protesting people uh, of other complexions uh, in a way that might be somewhat familiar to people in America in 2019. But it's sort of about the message uh, of Springsteen's music and what this kid does with it. So um, it's also, a I don't know, it's like a weepy movie. My significant other was in the women's room after the movie, after the showing that we saw on Saturday, and there were there was more than one woman in there who was still crying from the movie. So, so there. Uh, and uh, very quickly, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I like that call. Um, uh, very quickly, you know, as far as buying, buying Greenland goes, like I, I, once again, we can never tell whether this guy is trolling us or not, whether he's whether he's gaslighting us. I mean, he can't possibly be serious about buying Greenland, except he actually could be serious about buying Greenland. Uh, And, uh, you know, just to peel it back and maybe say the one serious thing about it. The not so serious thing is, I think we have to deal with him like a teenager and say, until you fix your old island, you can't have a new island. All right. Fix up Puerto Rico and then we'll talk about whether you can get Greenland or not. But you can't get a new island while the old island is still broken. Um, But it's also very typical of him that he says there's strategic value in Greenland. So any other president would say, so we need to work better with Denmark and other stakeholding nations in that area and, and work better to uh, to make Greenland part of whatever kind of strategy he's thinking about. I don't know what that is. Um, you know, but we need to we need to collaborate more with our allies. And as far as I can tell, he hates all, he hates all of our allies. So he wouldn't do that. And he's very much a lonely, go-it-alone kind of guy in ways that we've talked about. Uh, All right. So that, I mean, his psychology is somewhat revealed, I think, by the idea that he would rather buy Greenland than actually talk to Denmark about whatever the hell it is he wants to talk about. All right. Let's go to Jason in Bristol. Hi, Jason. How you doing, Colin? Just fine. How about you? uh, I'm a monthly sustainer, and I love your show. I listen to it nearly every day. My question is, if we, if DJT gets his way on a citizenship question on the census, what can we really do? Can we uh, refuse to answer that question? Can we all mark that we're not citizens in solidarity? I mean, what options do we really have? To, uh, to to thwart his efforts on the citizenship question. You know, it's a really interesting. Uh, I'm I'm trying to. Uh, I'm not a good good enough um, on the spot game theorist to think about what would happen if everybody. I think if though I think the problem with refusing to answer the question is that the people who will answer the question will then be disproportionately counted as citizens, and, and so you you in a way might be. So the people who will answer that question are people who aren't troubled by it. The people who aren't troubled by it are probably a little bit closer ideologically to Donald Trump than they are to Bernie Sanders. Um, so in a way, you're creating a, a, a picture of disproportionate representation of the side that you don't want to give that kind of picture about. So I'm not sure that that will work. But I think you raise an interesting question. What what could we do if, in fact, this thing somehow or other manages to get rammed through? So, so we'll just sort of game that out uh, on another day. We'll put it on the back burner. Thanks for your call, Jason. Thanks for listening every day. Thanks for being a, a supporter. I'm trying to to do this, so I finish with Ch- with Sh- with Shackleford. Um, so I'm going to very quickly do this with uh, Jordan in Stonington. Hi, hi, Jordan. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me, and thanks to you and your crew for running the program. Thank you. Oh, so I should say, no problem. No problem. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, I also don't have a whole lot of time, so I'll make it quick and I'll just uh, say my spiel and then let you respond. However. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Jeffrey Epstein, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in prison on suicide watch, allegedly commits suicide. They, the, I believe it was New York State Medical Examiner, someone examines, does the autopsy or whatever, rules it a suicide. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, I have never seen, I've never experienced such like a collective skepticism from across kind of all political spectrums and walks of life of people that just do not buy that. Like, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there, some of them certainly more far-fetched than others and, and damaging as well in, in case of, like, Sandy Hook and some of those crazy ones. But, uh, but this man had, a, had just so much dirt on so many powerful people. It's really hard for me not to be really skeptical that there's some kind of foul play going on here. I, I I don't know if you, I think it was last week that I, I said on Monday this pretty much the same thing, that in my life and in, in my career as a journalist, I've been taught that when I think it might be a conspiracy, but human incompetence is a possible explanation, I should always gravitate towards human incompetence. It's a more likely explanation because people aren't good at a lot of things, including keeping secrets, <laughs> which is why one it's very difficult to maintain a conspiracy. Uh, and, and the more people who have to be involved in the conspiracy for it to work, the less likely it is to hold together. So I usually go with incompetence. But I totally agree with you, uh, Jordan, that this time, if there was ever a, a fact pattern that that made us want to violate a rule like always believe it's incompetence instead of a conspiracy. This is the one. I mean, you you almost couldn't have designed a more tempting conspiracy theory. But there may be somebody who can get us out of this mess. And I think it might be our last caller of the day, Shackelford from Granby. What have you got for us? Hello, Colin. Yes. Thank you for allowing me to speak on the program. All right. But do it fast. We're All running right. out of time. Shackleford's not my real name. We need to legalize magic mushrooms. It's a need of our society. It's the only thing that's going to get out of this mess. Can I ask if you're microdosing right now? Yes, I'm <laughs> running an underground network across the United States and Canada. The wave is coming. Yeah, but are you the personally are you personally microdosing at this moment? That's what I want to know. No, no, no. It's right. Monday, man. <laughs> All right. We can't end better than that. Wolfie, bring the music up. Uh, Thanks to everybody who helped out today. Memorize the new number. It's 888-720-WNPR or 888-720-9677. Don't call it now, though. We're done. And remember, it's Monday. It's too early to start microdosing. Actually, actually, given the Greenland news, and I didn't even get to Newt Gingrich and his plan to go to the moon using his sweepstakes— or Marianne Williamson wanting to remove the portrait of Andrew Jackson from the White House. Who knows when it's time to start microdosing?